Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Well, afternoon, everybody. It's great to be here again with you this afternoon. And like Linda said, we're carrying on with our series on the woman at the well. Uh, So in the first week, Caro spoke about this passage from the point of view from the early church fathers or patristic fathers, and she gave us some insight on probably some of the original understandings, original context, because uh, those people came, you know, just a few hundred years or less than after the actual stories and after Jesus happened um, and came to earth. Then uh, Becca last week spoke on the passage from a feminist point of view and gave us that, that amazing quote that feminism is really just seeing women as humans, which I think is fair enough, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's amazing. So it's not about dragging men down, but it's about lifting women up as equals as well. And tonight, I'm going to be finishing up this series. And actually, we could probably do like another month of this. There's so much in this story. It's amazing. But tonight, I'm going to be finishing up by talking about these passages from the point of view that it is a microcosm of revelation. And so what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. We'll definitely be going to go through it tonight. But first, we're just going to go through the actual passage. But, bef- but instead of actually reading it out like we usually do, this time we're just going to do something a little bit different because there's a great depiction of this passage on the, um, that, that Chosen series. And so I'm just going to show, show that tonight instead of reading through it. It just goes for a few minutes and it just I think it gives us a little bit more insight. Yes, there's a bit of a creative license when they when they uh, dramatise these events, but I think it kind of fleshes it out a bit as well. So, yeah, Dan, if you could play that for us, that'd be great. I love how it breathes life into the scriptures that, you know, I've read so many times over the years, but it's, it kind of gives it a new, a new feeling, and it kind of immerses you there. Yeah, really enjoyable. So, the woman at the well, um, actually, her name is Fontini, actually. And since we're talking about women like they're humans, we should give her a name and we should use her name. So Fantini is the name of this woman and after this encounter with, with uh, Jesus, she actually becomes an amazing evangelist and for 30 years until her death, she actually goes to Africa and, and does a lot, similar to Paul, in, in evangelising and spreading the gospel and, and the message, which, which is amazing all the way up to where she actually ends up before Nero, the emperor of Rome. If you know anything about Nero, he's one of the most ruthless tyrants that ever ruled Rome. And she's got guts. She actually tries to evangelise Nero, which ultimately gets her killed as a martyr. But this woman is an amazing woman. And so, yeah, so we should at least honour her by her name, Fantini. So I'm, trying, I'm going to try and use that. This was just a decision I made just now. And so I'm going to probably try to use that as much as I can tonight rather than just saying the woman. Anyway, in this 10-minute conversation, or probably less than 10-minute conversation, we see the revelation, the microcosm of revelation, which means that when Jesus came to Fontini, he was nothing more than just a stranger. But when he left, after 10 short minutes, he was, in her eyes, the Messiah. You see, when it comes to revelation, in our lives, as Christ reveals himself to us, it usually takes years, if not decades. And if we look at the revelation of God throughout mankind, it can take centuries or millennia. But here, we get revelation in just a short amount of time. 
which is why we call it a microcosm. And so I want to just go through the different steps that this woman went through and the different steps that Jesus revealed himself to Fantini and just break that down a bit so we can see what she actually went through here, which is it's really quite fascinating. And so, if, yep, go to that slide. So first, understanding Fantini has about Jesus is that he's just another thirsty man. As she's walking up towards the well, she can see Jesus' silhouette there, and she can see it's a man, and we know that she's had quite a lot of experiences with men, probably a lot of them not positive, and so you can almost imagine the eye roll she has. Here's another man here just to get in my way here, to annoy me, to torment me, to persecute me, to maybe to proposition me. Whatever it was, Jesus at this stage was just another man to get in her way. As she then approaches, she would realise that Jesus is then a Jew, either by the way he looked or at least by the time he opened his mouth and he, she heard the accent, she would have realised this is a Jew. And this is even worse. This is worse than a Samaritan man because this comes now with the added prejudice that the Jews look down upon the Samaritans. They see them as, as crossbreeds with the, the Assyrians back when they were in captivity. They see them as you know, filthy mudbloods, if you want to use a Harry Potter reference. They are unpure. They're not real Jews. And then as they start to discuss and, and, um, and talk to each other, she would realise that he's a rabbi. She would realise that he's educated in the law of God. And so therefore he's a holy man or, uh, or a teacher or a rabbi. And she does something actually quite unusual here. She starts to debate with him over theology. And this, we have to understand, this is a big no-no. This is taboo for a Samaritan. So we've got a Samaritan woman... <laughs> arguing about theology with a male Jewish rabbi. There's this huge disparity here, yet she goes head-to-head with Jesus and she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Now, any good Jewish rabbi would not tolerate a Samaritan saying Jacob is their father. Sure, they both came from the same place, but again, because the Samaritans were seen as uh, impure, they would not allow the Samaritans called Jacob their father. But Jesus doesn't get angry with her. He doesn't you know, threaten to get her arrested because she's out of her place as a woman, as a Samaritan woman, but he engages her as an equal and continues the conversation. Next, she sees him as a prophet, and Jesus reveals to her that he knows about her five husbands, and the man she's now living with is not her husband. And she, she's... She's flawed at this point. And she says, I can see that you are a prophet. And it's almost like she's trying then to get the attention off her life and just change the subject any way she can. And so she does what she shouldn't be doing and goes even further down that theological argument. Now she says, where should we worship? In the temple or upon the mountain, which is Mount Garrison for the Samaritans? But again, Jesus doesn't get angry. And he doesn't, you know, question why she had so many husbands or threaten to get a stoned or anything like that. Instead, he expands the revelation and tells her it's not about where you worship, it's about how you worship. God is spirit. That's what's important. And then finally, he reveals himself to her as the Messiah. You see, at this point, Fatini is now flustered. She's exposed. She's confused. And all she can say is, I don't know any of this. All I know is that the Messiah will explain all this when he comes. 
And Jesus says, I am he. And she is, for the probably first time, she's speechless. <laughs> she has no reply to that. He says, I am he. And this I am that Jesus uses, it's not just like any old I am. This is, trans, this is the same translation as a Hebrew I am that God used when he was speaking to Moses through the burning bush. This is the great I am. This is, it's not a, a boastful I am, like I am, look how awesome I am, or anything like that. This is, this is defined as an empathetic statement. And so this I am, it's about life. It's about wholeness. It's all-encompassing. It's not just like I'm standing here talking to you or I'm, I'm hungry. This is I am a father or I am a child or I, I'm a child of God. And in this case, I am the Messiah. This I am speaks to your very innermost being. And that, for the Messiah, encompasses all of us as well. And so this is this microcosm of revelation that we see in this story with Jesus and Fertini. And, and it's amazing how it, it's broken down that way. So just to summarise again, so the woman, sorry, Fertini, <laughs> tolerated the thirsty man. She disliked the Jew. She debated with the rabbi. She was blown away by the prophet and she adored the Messiah, the microcosm of revelation we see here. And so now what I just want to do is just briefly compare this revelation to uh, how Christ reveals himself in our life and then take a bit of a further look at how God has revealed himself to mankind over the history of all mankind. And so, revelation within ourselves. You see, for us, God reveals himself to us slowly, doesn't he? And if we break this down, this is obviously a gross generalisation, but if we just break this down into a few steps, starting from a point of unbelief, growing up outside of a Christian household, you probably would have heard of the Bible, you probably would have heard of Jesus, but the Bible wouldn't be anything more than just another fictional story that you've heard. And Jesus probably wouldn't be really any more than what Santa Claus might be. That's probably a, a very basic starting point. And then through your experience and, and life, you would have probably encountered some Christians or seen Christians on the news and, and heard some very vocal <laughs> Christians as well. And you realise that people take this religious stuff really seriously and they make major life decisions based around this kind of stuff. But you might not be at a place yet to believe and so maybe all this Christianity stuff, it's just something for the weak to latch on to because they can't stand on their own two feet and accept life without some big sky daddy is the terminology I think that's used. And then hopefully as you experience maybe some authentic uh, and real Christian encounters, you realise there's maybe there is a bit more to it. They're not all picketing abortion clinics and, and, you know, and, and imp impressing their views on other people, but there, there is a genuine love there. There is, there is some empathy there. There's maybe even a, a quiet confidence there that there's, there's a purpose to life. And then we have our own encounter with the real living Christ and our life takes off at a completely different trajectory. And to the next few steps, I'm just going to use Brian McLaren's four stages of faith, or we can also call this the four stages of revelation that we often go through. First of all is simplicity. Now, we've just given our lives to God. And so now we understand, oh, I'm now on the inside and everyone else is now on the outside. 
everything is black and white, everything is simple. And so it's in, out, right, wrong, I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell. It's everything simple and black and white. But as we begin to mature in our Christian faith and we can see other denominations and we talk to other Christians, we realise it's not so black and white. There are, I, I think I'm in the right camp, but those guys over there, they're actually saying some interesting stuff. But, but maybe I can dismiss it, but maybe, maybe there's something credible to it. And as that continues, we then move into the third stage, which is perplexity. Now, what other people are saying, what other denominations are saying, just can't simply be disregarded. The contradictions cannot be dismissed. And we're unsure who is right and who is wrong. And we're confused in this stage. But as we move through this complexity stage, we eventually, hopefully, move into a place of harmony, uh, the final stage. Actually, it's not quite the final stage. In harmony, we, have, we, we accept the contradictions we can't equate. But we find unity in the essentials. And we see maybe God no longer as a punisher... And it's no longer a wrathful God, but God is a loving Father. And it's about intimacy, and it's about relationship, and it's about existence, it's about life, this relationship with God. But this isn't just a linear process. It's not like once we get to harmony, we're done. Because often, once we sit in harmony long enough, we then realise that it becomes our new place of simplicity, and we need to start going through this process again. Or maybe we go through this process at different rates with different parts of our life. So... We understand, so, so the speed we go through, our understanding of God as a loving Father might be different to our understanding around atonement and things like that as well. And so this isn't just a one and done thing, but this is something we continually circle around and keep revisiting as well. And so this is a great little tool that I've often looked back to and trying to work out, okay, so where am I at with different areas in my faith, in, in, in my life, and what do I need to do to move through to the next step? Anyway. That's all I want to say about Revelation in ourselves. What I'm going to spend a little bit more time on is now Revelation throughout human history. A few years ago, I was talking to a friend, actually it was a friend of a friend of mine, not a Christian, and, but the topic of the Bible came up. And he was saying that he can't believe in God or the Bible because of the disparity between the God that's represented in the Old Testament and the God that's represented in the New Testament. The God in the Old Testament is about wrath and anger and punishment and he's a jealous God, but we get a very loving, you know, casual, laid-back kind of God in the New Testament and he can't accept the two. And so his conclusion was either the Bible's just flat-out wrong or God's bipolar and has massive mood swings, neither of which he could accept and so just dismissed all of it. And, sure... Fair enough. And we've heard this argument before, haven't we? And this isn't a new argument. It's come up in my life you know, plenty of times before. And when I hear it, um, previously I've, I've seen like an equation. How do I balance Old Testament God and New Testament God and say they're one and the same? And so I'll often try to make up you know, almost like excuses. And so, oh, okay, so maybe the people that God commanded to be punished or the nations he said uh, should be slaughtered, Maybe, maybe they're just evil people and so they just deserved it. Or maybe a prophet did go to them, but they didn't take him seriously. And so they had a chance to repent, but they brought it on upon themselves. Or maybe God's just outside of moral law. And so because he's God, he can do whatever he wants. And we shouldn't hold him to the same moral laws that we hold ourselves to. Or maybe because to God, our life is really just a drop in the ocean of all of eternity. And so, you know, killing an entire nation isn't that big a deal. 
Yeah, that's a horrible line of thought to go down. But it's these kind of thoughts that go through my head, like how do I balance this equation? And so I'd usually deal with it by not dealing with it and just trying not to think about it. It wasn't until probably partway through my studies that I, th I thought to myself, I really need to try and get my head around this kind of stuff because it was, it was like eating away at a, at a hole, like a hole inside of me. And through my readings and studies and research, I began to understand that the Bible doesn't just give us a clear, holistic picture of God. Rather, it's a series of snapshots of how mankind has understood God throughout history. And so, just a quick side note, if this is something that you're still trying to balance that equation, that you're not too sure how to answer these kind of things, then I'm not going to be able to give you all the answers <laughs> tonight, at least of what I've found to work out so far. But there are a lot of resources about and there's a great book which is a good starting place. I think I've mentioned it before, a book called The Bible Tells Me So by Pete Enns. And he addresses this stuff head on. From chapter 2, he's addressing the fact that God commanded the Israelites to commit genocide against the Canaanites. And so it's not just killing the other soldiers, but it's going and killing the young, the old, the babies, the the livestock, the women, the, the burn their villages to the ground, just annihilate them from the face of the earth. How do you balance that with, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son? They are two very different things. And so that's a great starting place if this stuff is perplexing you as well. Anyway, what I've come to understand is that the Bible is written by different people at different times for different purposes. And so we need to realise that the Bible is mostly written, especially the Old Testament, by an ancient people trying to understand God as best they can within the confines of the cultural context. You see, the Old Testament, there's plenty of war in the Old Testament. But for an ancient people, in a warlike time, you have a warlike God. And so if you win a war, that means God's condoning what you're doing, God's with you, and God's even commanding you to do these things. If you lose the wall, you've obviously upset God somehow, so you need to work out what you've done or make the sacrifices or do whatever you did to stop God being unhappy with you. Now, it's quite barbaric, but that's the best that these ancient, probably pre-Iron Age people could do at the time. And so we have a war like God as the Israelites are going through the Promised Land and conquering the different nations. We get a jealous God when the Israelites turn and start worshipping other idols. We see a wrathful God when the Israelites are carted off as slaves. We get a distant and a silent God when the Israelites are in captivity and they're crying out in their chains and in their sorrows. And then we get a redeeming God as the Israelites are taken back and re-establish the Israelite nation again and rebuild the temple. And then, of course, we get the loving God of the New Testament as well. Now, neither of these iterations of God is a full holistic picture of God, but just gradual small revelations of his character, different angles of the same one God. And we need to approach Scripture, and this is one of the most important things I've learned, we need to approach Scripture with wisdom. When we read Scripture, we need to approach it with wisdom. If we take everything literal and saying this gives us an entire picture of God, this is exactly what God's like, then we just miss the point. In the book I mentioned, Pete actually says this, if you go to the next quote, the Bible is not God's final word, Jesus is. And that is a huge revelation in itself. If we look at the Bible as a collection of unchanging information about God, we miss how the reality of Jesus necessarily transforms Israel's story. We miss Jesus. 
You see, Jesus is the centerpiece of the Bible. And when we read scripture, first and foremost, we should be looking to find Jesus within the pages of the Bible, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament. And so God has revealed himself to us bit by bit over history. And even today, we still don't have the full picture. And so the big question, at least that comes into my mind, is, is why? Why does God choose to do it like this? Why doesn't God just give us the full, correct, holistic picture from the very birth of mankind? Wouldn't that be easier? It would be so much easier if we knew exactly what God wanted, exactly what he expected. We would know exactly how we should act, what he would be happy with, what he's not happy with. If we could say X equals Y, life would be so much simpler. But instead, God drip feeds us small parts of himself through revelations over the course of human history and over the course of our lives as well. You see, for God, it seems like having an accurate picture of him is not the most important thing. It seems like the journey is almost more important than the destination. If we go back to the story of Fontini at the, uh, at the well with Jesus, think about what, what would have happened if as soon as she approached Jesus, Jesus I don't know, jumps out from behind the well and says, hey, I'm the Messiah. Do you reckon she would have believed him? I, I don't know if she would. I mean, I, I can only speculate. Maybe she would have. But I don't think it would have meant the same. I don't think it would have been as significant for her. You see, there's something significant about working something out yourself. There's something meaningful, something intrinsic, something valuable about the journey we go on, on of Revelation. To use a bad example, it's like Wordle. Who's played Wordle here? We've got to guess the word, yeah, the word of the day. And I'll be going through a few of those. And sometimes there's a word and I just can't get it. And when I finally work it out at the end, I feel like a genius. I feel like I could have been the guy that wrote the dictionary. But there are other times when I'm at work and I have colleagues that are playing Wordle as well and they accidentally, accidentally, <laughs> tell me what the word of the day was before I've actually solved it. And that's frustrating. But the end result's the same. The end result, at the end of the day, I know what the word is. But the journey makes it so much more important, so much more meaningful to me. And so, maybe, maybe there are some messages that just can't be told. There are some messages that have to be experienced. And so, when we look at Fantini at the well, she comes to Jesus and she's thirsty, both physically and spiritually as well. And Jesus tells her about the water of eternal life, this, this spring of living water. And initially, her response is selfish, isn't it? She says, give me this water for the simple reason, so she doesn't have to keep returning to the well every single day. But at some point during the conversation, during this slow reveal, well, 10-minute reveal, she actually receives the water. Do we realize that? She actually receive, Jesus gives her the water, and she receives it, because by the end of it, she realizes he is the Messiah, and she has now become, in fact, that living well of water, and she goes off to share that with everyone else in a village, and as I was saying before, and then you know, throughout Africa over the next 30 years as well. And so, and actually, that's one of the good things about watching it, because on the, uh, the, the Chosen, because you can actually see, if you go back and watch it, you can see the moment, the change in her face when she actually receives the living water. Now, is that 100% accurate? Maybe, maybe not, but it's just interesting. You can actually see that change when everything turns around for her. And so, the slow reveal. 
can be frustrating. It can be really frustrating, can't it? Because if you're like me, I want to know the answers all the time. And so, yes, the slow reveal can leave room for misinterpretation. And yes, it's unquantifiable. But Eugene Peterson, he's the author of the message translation of the Bible, he says this, and this is from his biography. If God wanted to communicate to us perfectly, he would use mathematics, the only precise language we have. But it's hard to say I love you in algebra. I love that. <laughs> it's frustrating, but it's also so true as well. You see, being right is more of an issue for us than it is for God. And if that wasn't the case, then there wouldn't be over 40,000 different types of Christian denominations. You realize there's that many. It's insane. Actually, do, do, do you know there's a snake church? Have you heard of snake church? And they actually hold Mark 16 really strongly that says you can handle poisonous vipers and not be, and, and not be bitten. You can drink their poison and not die. And at Snake Church, they actually literally hold poison snakes. And sometimes they get bitten. <laughs> and that, that's intense, isn't it? I mean, you think it's hard inviting people to Central Church. Imagine inviting people to Snake Church. <laughs> what are you going to do? We're going to sing some songs, going to hear a message, we're going to play some cobras. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, look at how Jesus responds to the theological debate that he has with Fontini. Twice she challenges him. She calls Jacob the Samaritan father and she also uh, says, where should we worship, in the temple or on the mountain? Neither time, though, does Jesus slap her down and say, no, you've got your theology wrong, you've, you've misinterpreted the scripture, you've got, it, you know, you've got it all wrong. He doesn't get angry with her. He doesn't say, you're wrong, I'm right. Instead, he expands upon her revelation. He tells her, it doesn't matter where you worship God, but how you worship him in the spirit, that's what's important. You see, the revelations of God, they always grow. They always get bigger and bigger and bigger. They never shrink back. God expands his revelation upon what we know, and our understanding of the kingdom of God grows bigger and wider. And we can see this throughout the course of the Bible. So first, you know, it's a Jew, the Jews are the chosen people, the Jews are in. And then in stories like the one of Fontini, it's the Jews and now the Samaritans are in. And then in Acts we get that's now the Samaritans and the Gentiles. And then it's the Gentiles and now it's all nations. And where I think the church is largely at the moment is it's all nations because I think largely the church believes in, yes, the Great Commission, we should go out there and make disciples, but it's now the minorities. That's the next frontier that the church is being challenged against. Yes, all nations is great, but there are some minorities that we say, well, if the church is saying or deems them broken, this is, they come from a place of brokenness, then maybe God isn't there, isn't with them. And so it might be you know, certain people in the disability sector. It might be single parents. It might be immigrants. It might be people of the queer community that people say, well, the church can say that only so far, but no further. But God always expands his revelation, always gets bigger, it doesn't shrink back. Because for God, relationships are more important than being right. And sure, absolutely, there's a time to argue and debate theology. The Bible actually says we should do that. Iron sharpens iron, we should learn from each other and debate theological things. But we should never allow being right to stand in the way of being loved. And I think that is the key. On the cross, when we crucified Jesus, we showed Jesus that we were right 
and he was wrong. We won, we killed him. But on the cross, Jesus showed that he loved us. That's the big difference. I think about, actually, when I started doing my, my theology degree, I think about six years ago, like, to be perfectly honest, one of the factors that made me want to do it is because I wanted to know scripture well enough, so if I was to find myself in a theological argument, I'd know my stuff well enough to be able to win that argument. It's about my ego, <laughs> and it's about, you know, me saving face and not being humiliated. But I've changed, I've had revelation. This is me back, you know, going back into the simplicity stage. I want to be right because the other people are wrong. And I've seen myself go through some different stages of that now. And now, if I were to enter into a theological debate with someone who thinks very differently from me, sure, I'll, I'll still want to get my, um, my thoughts across, but if the other person is just hell-bent in, in, in proving that they're right, I, wouldn't, I don't think I'd feel as much threatened, but I'd feel more sorry for them because mis- being right can distract you from the fact that we're loved. And that is the key message of Scripture. That's the key message of the cross. Relationships are the most important thing to God. That's the whole reason why we're creators to start with. And the beauty of this is it's so simple. We don't need to be a theologian to love God or be loved by God. Even a child can do it. I've got, I've got kids myself and I love it when they give me a hug. And that to me says more love than if they were to write a doctrine on Oren. <laughs> The nature of Oren, the ins and outs of Oren, give me a 40-page report on exactly who I am. I mean, sure, I'd be impressed. <laughs> but the hug means so much more to me. And that's the beauty of Christ. It's so simple, even kids can do it. And I think that's why Jesus used that whole born-again analogy, to come to children like God, to leave behind our prejudices and just simply love. And the best way to do that is to look at the cross, because that's what the cross teaches us and so that's what we're going to do to finish tonight we're going to look at the cross and take communion together so could someone go and grab the kids for me and release yeah release the kids <laughs> and watch them come run, running in. actually that that's a great analogy in itself watch how the kids come in and how they approach the communion table it's all about you know there's pushing there's shoving They're trying to work out which cup's the fullest, which is the most juice, how to get the biggest piece of bread. And do they they get the significance of it? Do they understand the right thing? Do they understand the holy sacrament of the Eucharist? No. (laughs) They don't even know those words. Some probably do it to varying degrees, but some of the little ones, they just want bread. But they love it, and they come enthusiastically. When was the last time you pushed someone out of the way to get bread? (laughs) So maybe, so let's tonight, yeah, let's tonight... Come, enjoy the bread and the wine and remember the cross, actually, and if, if nothing else gets you out of your seat running to the table, this is the last of the port we have, and so if, if you want alcohol, <laughs> you've got to be quick. The rest is, we've got lots of juice, but that's the last of the alcohol. And so I'll just finish up in a prayer, and by that time the kids should probably be here, and then we'll just come up and we'll enjoy communion together. Thank you, God, that you make it easy for us. It's so easy to love you. And that's all you want. You don't want, you know, complex doctrines and you don't want arguments. You don't want us to so much be right. You just want us to love you and to love each other well. And help us to remember that first and foremost. Love before law, rules before, sorry, relationship before rules.
I pray we remember this in our interactions with each other, with fellow Christians, with people who don't believe and just represent Jesus and Jesus' love to the world as he did when he was here 2,000 years ago. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Ha, ha, ha.